0: I have an absolutely vivid memory of something that we encountered about 20, I'm just guessing, it was probably 25 years ago. We were driving to church, and my parents commented on a bumper sticker that they saw in front of them. And again, why do things get stuck in our memory, right? This one is vividly ingrained. The bumper sticker said, My karma... Ran over my dogma. My karma ran over my dogma, and I think that was so ingrained in my memory. Not just because I'm 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 absolutely addicted to puns, good or bad. Uh, one might say I'm, dependent on them. Um, it's going to get better from here, folks. I promise. I promise. It's going to get better from here. Just be patient. Uh, But not just that, but because of the message it seems to be communicating. My parents were talking about that. My karma ran over my dogma. Well, dogma is the revealed truth that we believe we would speak of Christian dogma being revealed truth that we embrace. It is our faith. It is our conviction in our faith. And Karma. Karma is the Eastern mystical belief that there are actions and intentions that we have. Thank you, Ben. And those actions and intentions result in consequences. We think of karma as kind of some uh, law, a cosmic law that cause and effect, that good things happen to good people, bad things happen to bad people? What would it mean for one's karma to run over one's dogma beyond the mere pun? Well, the interesting thing to point out is that for many Christians, their karma has run over their dogma. In fact, I saw a, a, a survey recently, it was from only a year ago. Someone uh, asked uh, Americans what number of them believe in karma. And did you know even in a Christian, a, 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 a country that is predominantly Christian, at least in its profession, nearly 60% of Americans profess to believe in karma. Nearly 60% of Americans. But that's not even more surprising. The fact that Christians, and we're not talking just Christians in profession, Christians who profess to be born-again believers and hold to a biblical worldview, about one-third of them, 33%, said they believe in karma. Now, karma, I should just tell you, is not found anywhere in the Bible. Karma is an unbiblical idea. It is connected to not a God who said that he will render to every man according to his works, a personal God who judges personally, but instead is a kind of mystic cosmic law, some kind of broader cosmic impersonal force that is connected centrally to the Hindu and Buddhist idea of reincarnation, the idea that we will be reincarnated in a different form. This itself is entirely against the teaching of the Bible, which says it is appointed unto man once to die, and after this, the judgment. And so we ourselves should recognize We should not allow any karma, so to speak, to run over our dogma. We are based in our faith on the word of God and what it teaches us. And yet this idea of karma, that good things follow good people and bad things follow bad people, nonetheless persists in a kind of mystical cause and effect in our society. Here's the problem that runs into some very challenging realities. And I thought about that old bumper sticker and the philosophical questions that it raised. As we came to this story, one of the most remarkable stories in our Bible, one of the most sordid stories in all of our Bible. I mean, friends, when we think about this story, this is a soap opera. I mean, I don't think even a soap opera writer today could fully bring out this example. It's the old saying that truth is stranger than fiction. This story, if we really understand what's going on, we are going to be morally shocked. But I wonder if we're also more than that. Jesus described one of the protagonists of this story, John the Baptist, as being the greatest prophet who ever lived. The greatest prophet, he said, of anyone that is born of woman, the greatest prophet is John the Baptist, greater than Elijah and Elisha, greater than Isaiah and Jeremiah, greater than Daniel, greater than Moses, greater than any prophet to that point. And how does he die? He dies with his head being chopped off. Why? Because a lustful king's teenage stepdaughter danced in front of him and pleased him. Well, how does that work? Because that stepdaughter's mom hated John the Baptist for preaching against her incestuous marriage to the stepdaughter's stepfather. And you look at John the Baptist's death and you say, how entirely pointless. How entirely random. How entirely unjust. And we say, how do we reconcile this with any worldview? And then we realize what happened to Herod. And the consequences that came from him. And we start to realize this is not some notion of cosmic karma coming back to account. There is a very real biblical truth that will help us sort through what is otherwise could be a very confusing story in the life of John the Baptist and his death and in the life of Herod Antipas. Let's not let our karma run over our dogma this morning. The title of the message is Herod and John, Conflict and Consequence. Herod and John, Conflict and Consequence. And here's what we're going to do We're going to start out first by looking at the characters, because again, to know the players, you need a scorecard, and to know really what's going on in this story, we need to get some biographical information of who these people are. Let's start with our text, as we do each week, and understand our context. In chapter 6 here, as we continue moving through the book of Mark, Jesus has appeared, he's come back to his hometown of Nazareth, and he has been decisively rejected. They are prejudiced against him based in their pride. Their prejudice is not that he is different from them. It's that he's like them. They grew up around him. They knew his family. And because he's like them, he can't be the son of God. He can't be the Messiah. They know his family. And so they reject him in their prejudice. And then we see Jesus sending 12 out, as we looked at last week, his 12 apostles out to facilitate his own ministry. Miraculous works are following them. And notice then in verse 14, And King Herod heard of him, that's of Jesus, for his name, Jesus' name, was spread abroad. He was becoming, obviously, very well known. And he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead. And therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. More on that in a moment. Others said that it is Elias or Elijah. This is Elijah who has been resurrected. And others said that it is a prophet or as one of the prophets. Well, he's just in our long national tradition of mouthpieces for God. I was what other people thought about Jesus. We've seen this debate as we've gone through the book of Mark already. Who is this man? What is he? And how should we relate to him? But verse 16, but when Herod heard thereof, he said, It is John whom I beheaded. He is risen from the dead. And those who know Greek tell us this is entirely emphatic. This John whom I have beheaded, he is risen from the dead. And now Mark is going to use a rhetorical device, a storytelling device of a flashback. We sometimes see that in movies or in other stories. Uh, We are introduced to something and then the director takes us back behind the scenes and it's a flashback. How did we get to this point? And this is exactly what Mark is doing here. He's going to take us back in time. Now notice here what he says. For Herod himself had sent forth and laid hold upon John and bound him in prison for Herodias' sake, his brother Philip's wife, for he... Had married her. Now, there is a triangle here. We have heard sometimes of something called a love triangle. This is no love triangle. This is some kind of triangle here, though. There are three characters. John the Baptist, Herodias, and Herod. Now, let's give just a brief introduction to who these are. Who is John the Baptist? Well, we were introduced to John the Baptist in Mark 1. He was presented as the herald as the forerunner to make ready the way for Jesus to come and to introduce his ministry. John the Baptist came preaching repentance. He was saying, you, Israel, are out of step with God, and your Jewish heritage is not going to save you. You are sinners, and you need the salvation of God himself. And in this, he was paving the way. He was making a straight path, as prophesied in the Old Testament, for Jesus to come and preach the kingdom of God. And so John the Baptist comes preaching. And he attracted a great following of people that were coming and publicly confessing their sins and being baptized. He developed such a significant um, reputation that the religious elites from Jerusalem left Jerusalem and went all the way out to the Jordan River. This was the wilderness area. And made the trek out there to hear who this man is and what he had to say. We know John the Baptist was a very straightforward preacher, but he was also a very humble man. John 3 recounts that when there was a question about who Jesus was, John's response was, he must increase and I must decrease. He recognized his role was not to be the one who was hogging the spotlight. John the Baptist's role was like someone who was in the spotlight and couldn't wait to step out of it couldn't wait for the spotlight to shift from him over onto Jesus and say, he's the one who should get the spotlight. You should look at him. Don't look at me. So he recognized what his role was. And now he's disappeared. He's been in prison. Now, to understand why he's in prison, you need to know two other characters. One of them is Herod. Now, Herod, there are many Herods mentioned in our New Testament. And we're getting confused if we don't know which is which. We're first introduced to a Herod in the book of Matthew. And this is the story surrounding Jesus' birth. You remember the wise men coming from the east and talking to Herod? And Herod tries to get them to identify who this king of the Jews is so he can go and slaughter him. And ultimately he sends and has all the children two years and under in the city of Bethlehem destroyed. That's Herod the Great. Herod the Great was a king. He was was a king ultimately of Edomite descent, but he came into at least some parts of the Jewish faith. He ingratiated himself to the Jewish people. He built the massive temple that was at Jerusalem, and so this bore his name, Herod the Great, and he was a very proud man. Well, he had ten wives, I think it's recorded. He had many sons. In fact, some of his sons he killed because he was worried about the power they were getting. This is just giving you an introduction into who the Herodian line was. Well, after Herod died, his rule over the land of Judea, under Rome, the Roman Empire, was split into four parts. Herod, his son, Herod Antipas, is described as a tetrarch. What is a tetrarch? A tetrarch is one of four. The kingdom was divided into four parts. Herod Antipas had the the reign over the territory of Galilee, where Jesus was from. Now it's interesting, Mark refers to him as a king, but he's not doing that formally. Herod Antipas actually wasn't a king. He was a Roman governor. He was completely subject to the Roman Empire and the Roman emperor. But nonetheless, he was a Roman-appointed governor, so he had some prominence. And Herod Antipas had a half-brother. Sometimes historians refer to him as Herod Philip. And Herod Philip was married to a woman named Herodias. That's the third character that we're identifying here today. And Herodias was married to Herod Philip, who had been disinherited by his dad, Herod the Great, and had moved to Rome... And apparently, Herod Antipas, when he was at Rome visiting his brother, saw his wife, Herodias. And he convinced his half-brother's wife to leave his half-brother and marry him and move to be the wife of the governor of that area. Now, this would have been scandalous, not only because of the fact that this was his half-brother's wife, Not only because Herodias was Herod the Great's granddaughter, Herodias was the niece of Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was marrying his niece. So you've got someone who is stealing his half brother's wife, who is also his niece, and thus it's an incestuous marriage. But then, not only that, Herod Antipas was already married. Herod Antipas was married to a woman who was the daughter of Eretas, the king of a a, a neighbor region just to the east and to the south of Galilee. And so what did Herod Antipas do? He divorced his wife, the daughter of Eretas. More on that later. Keep Keep that in mind. He divorces Arita, the, the, the daughter of eratos and takes Herodias, and they are married. Three characters. Now, notice. Secondly, here the conflict. Look at verse number eighteen. For John had said unto Herod, it is not lawful for thee to have thy brother's wife. Therefore Herodias had a quarrel against him and would have killed him, but she could not. Why could she not kill him? Because Herod feared John. He was afraid of John knowing that he was a just man and a holy and observed him and when he heard him he did many things and heard him gladly. Now what's going on here? Let's take those three characters and understand this conflict. What did John the Baptist do. John the Baptist, his portrait here is one of courage. Courage. Herod Antipas comes back with this this incestuous union, and John the Baptist says plainly and undoubtedly publicly, Herod Antipas, what are you doing? That's wrong. That's wrong for you to do that. Now, we are in a country in which, because of the First Amendment to our Constitution, we feel very free to criticize our public leaders. And we should be grateful for that freedom. No such freedom in Jesus' day. John the Baptist was taking his life in his hands when he said publicly and undoubtedly privately to to, um, Herod, what are you doing? It is unlawful for you to be in this incestuous relationship for a woman you have stolen from your half-brother. He made no bones about it, and if we know anything about how John the Baptist spoke, it was pretty blunt. He was the guy, after all, who when the Pharisees came to him, said, you pit of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So he was a pretty blunt guy. And undoubtedly, he just very plain spokenly said what was true. Now, just point this out about his courage. It was courageous because he had a lot to lose. And ultimately, he did lose it. He lost his life. And in fact, we see this in our own culture, not just in whether we criticize our political leaders but even politically do you know who has a very hard time criticizing the open sins of politicians members of the same party why was it so difficult for republicans recently to criticize very open very open immorality and sin of our former president because they had a lot to lose Why is it so difficult even for Democrats today to speak against certain aspects of their policy platforms or people in high positions of power? Because they have a lot to lose. And the real problem of our day today is that partisan politics, and not just partisan politics, is trying to make hypocrites of all of us. It's trying to make us criticize some and hold our tongue as to others. Let's look at the example of John the Baptist. who said, I don't care what I have to lose. I'm going to tell the truth. I'm going to speak what's right. I'm going to stand up for what is moral and oppose what is immoral, no matter what electoral effect it has, no matter what political effect it has. Why? Because I serve a different king. This was John the Baptist's courage, and it was rooted in what? He was entirely liberated. He was entirely free. He could say whatever he wanted to say because he knew it wasn't about him. It was about Jesus who he came to proclaim and his commitment to the kingdom of God and to the service of God allowed him to be utterly fearless in the face of whatever Herod and Herodias could bring against him. So he could stand courageously and say, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. May we stand courageously for truth no whatever the consequences in our day and age today. But notice what happened. Verse 19 tells us that, therefore, Herodias had a quarrel against him. She was utterly outraged against him. If the portrait of John is one of courage, the portrait of Herodias is one of being entirely callous. Entirely callous a woman who was so set in her bitterness against John and in her opposition undoubtedly provoked by a guilty conscience, it says she would have killed him, but she could not. In other words, this was a woman who was scheming to try to ensure that John the Baptist would be killed. And now what's the portrait of Herod? Notice, but she could not for Herod feared John. Knowing that he was a just man and a holy, and it says, and he observed him. When this word in the Greek is used in our New Testament, it has the idea of keeping or preserving. Our King James translators don't mean that Herod was just observing him like watching him, it was like he was watching over him. He was preserving him and protecting him. From whom? His wife. That's not a good marriage, folks. Not a good marriage. But here Herodias is scheming to kill him. And what is is Herod doing? Herod is a man conflicted. John was a man courageous. Herodias was a woman callous. And Herod was a man conflicted. Why? Because he undoubtedly hated what John had to say. And yet he was attracted to him as well. Why? Because he was afraid of him. He knew that he was holy. He knew that he was righteous. His character was going before him. And therefore, he wanted to hear him even though he was cutting him deeply, even though his conscience was shouting at him. Scripture says, when he heard him, he did many things and heard him gladly. Here's a man that is conflicted in his weakness. He knows what is right, but he is not willing to carry it out. And we see here not only the characters, not only the conflict between these characters, but notice finally here the consequence The consequence of this conflict. Look at verse 21. And when a convenient day was come that Herod on his birthday made a supper to his lords, high captains, and chief estates of Galilee. This is a birthday party. Commentators tell us that the Jews didn't have time for birthday parties. They thought they were pagan, but not the Romans. And the Romans would throw these absolutely debauched birthday parties. I mean, you think of what it would be a very over-the-top bachelor party in our world today. And then probably add on to that in debauchery and you've probably got something like this. The wine would have been flowing very freely. They would have been drunk. They would have absolutely, so it was just the men that were there. So you'd have had all the kinds of humor and all the other kinds of crude talk and everything along those lines. But the party wasn't complete unless they had a girl. And what is truly scandalous about this story is that Herodias sent her own daughter. Now, it's the stepdaughter of Herod Antipas. It would have been the daughter Salome. We actually know of her in history. Salome, it is the daughter of of Herodias and Herod Philip. And these kinds of plays, the kind of dance that would be done here, is, I promise you, nothing from Jane Austen. I promise you, they weren't doing the waltz, Okay. This was a scandalous, sensual, sexualized dance. And these were done by professionals, but not here. Herodias was so morally bankrupt that she sent her own daughter, her own teenage daughter, to salaciously dance in front of a bunch of drunken men. I mean, this just tells you how sordid and debauched this whole tale is. And notice verse 22. And the daughter of the said Herodias came in and danced and pleased Herod and them that sat with him. One commentator suggested this is a euphemism for what their attraction to her truly was. They were titillated by her. And so what happened? The king said unto the damsel, Ask of me whatsoever thou wilt, whatever you want, and I will give it to you. Ask whatever I want. And listen to what he says. And he swear unto her, Whatsoever thou shalt ask of me, I will give it thee under the half of my kingdom. Now this is a little picture. It harkens back to what, to what we remember Hasawaris said to Esther when she came to the banquet. Ask me whatever I want, I'll give you half of my kingdom. Here's the difference. Herod Antipas wasn't a king he didn't have a kingdom to give. He was completely under the rule of Rome, serving at their pleasure. So here is a man who's drunk. He's utterly captured by his own lust, by his own sensuality, and he makes this proud boast I am such a big deal, I'll give you whatever you want, even though he had no power to give it. Well, the trap is now about set. Because what happens? And she went forth and said unto her mother, what shall I ask? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. Herodias has seen her opportunity. And she says, the man that I hate, that I've been trying to kill, but my husband has been protecting him. Now I've got the chance. And what happens? And she came in straightway with haste under the king. Again, just think about the story that Mark is telling. She comes running back. She, doesn't, she wants to make sure Herod Antipas isn't going to change his mind when the booze wears off. And he comes sprint, she comes sprinting in with haste unto the king and asking, I will that thou give me by and by in a charger on a platter. The head of John the Baptist. Friends, this is, this is cannibal stuff. This is cannibal stuff. Cut off his head, put it on a plate, and bring it in to me. Now again, this isn't, this isn't entirely without precedent historically. Historians tell us that the great Roman orator Cicero made enemies of Mark Antony and his wife because he would speak against Mark Antony. And history tells us that that Cicero was beheaded. And when his head was brought before them, Mark Antony's wife took out her hairpin, pulled his tongue out, and started stabbing it as if to invoke a final kind of justice against that tongue that had spoken so many things against her. And there seems to be something similar here, right? That they are going to bring John the Baptist's head as a kind of final triumph of Herodias over this man who has spoken so courageously. And again, I I just want you to pause for a moment. Notice verse 26. The king was exceeding sorry. This word here, exceeding sorry, is what is described of Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. As sorrowful as Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, that's the word that's being used here to say how sorry Herod was. He was crushed And yet, notice, yet for his oath's sake and for their sakes which sat with him, he would not reject her. And immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded his head to be brought, and he went in and beheaded him in the prison. Friends, this is how the greatest prophet dies. Because a king was an incredibly weak man. He was utterly captured by his lust, utterly captured by his alcohol, utterly captured by his selfishness, and ultimately utterly captured by his pride. A stronger man would have said, you know what, that's wrong. I'm not going to do that, even if I made a foolish oath. But not Herod. Not when he was surrounded by his greatest men. His pride and his vanity said, okay, I guess I can't go back on what I said, even though it crushed him. Friends, notice just for a minute the contrast between these two men. Herod is the Roman ruler. He is the one who has full liberty to do whatever he wants with whomever he wants. He is the one who has liberty to live according to his sexual desires. The one who has liberty according to to throw a party that is the big party in town that everyone comes to. He is the one who is in a position of reputation and authority and power. John the Baptist is the one who is imprisoned, who is captive, and who has no control over his life. And yet who's the slave? John's not the slave. John had complete courage and liberty to say whatever needed to be said. Who was the slave? Herod was the slave. He was the slave to himself, to his own sexual desires. He was a slave. He was a slave to his vanity and to his pride, to everything that made him a weak man who could not resist his own wife. And doing the things that he knew was wrong and yet he felt constrained to do anyway. And I just want to say this, friends. We need to say this over and over again in our culture. When you give in to your selfish desires, you are not free. You are a slave. You are being enslaved. And your sexual desires and your vanity and your prideful desires and your own self-centeredness is trying to enslave you. And unless you are able to stand with the integrity of John the Baptist who said, it's not about me. It's about the kingdom of God and my place in it. It is that man, it is that woman who lives in obedience to the commands of God that is free, that is at liberty, that is able to live the life that God has called them to live no matter the consequences. And it is the weak man, it is the weak woman like Herod who is utterly a slave to his own desires, to his own selfishness. Friends, our culture today is telling us to be self-centered. It's telling us to pursue life with all the gusto that we can. And I simply want to warn you on the authority of the word of God, it will make you a slave. And the results will be catastrophic. The first thing is this, friends. If you are a Christian here today, and you are living a life of slavery to your own compulsions, to your own desires, to your sexual desires, to your desires of vanity and pride, to your own desires of materialism, I want to plead with you, you can have victory. You don't need to live life as a slave. You can be free. Jesus said, whom the Son makes free shall be free indeed. He came to give you his Holy Spirit and his very nature to live the life that God intended you to live. And I would plead with you this morning, do not be a Herod. Do not be enslaved by your own desires. But there's something else here. There's something about John. John the Baptist looks like he lived such a pointless life and a pointless death. It looks like he was simply the victim of chance and circumstance and wickedness. Great evil befell him. And we say his death seems so utterly random. But ultimately, we should recognize that God's sovereignty was even ruling over Herod's evil and Herodias's evil. Because the very story of John the Baptist's life was someone to come in and have the spotlight for a short period of time before he could point it to Jesus Christ. It was John the Baptist who said, he must increase and I must decrease. John the Baptist was ready to live and die like that because he knew ultimately that was God's calling. It was to point people to Jesus Christ. And here he bows from the scene, no matter how cruelly, no matter how evilly, he ultimately fulfilled the destiny that God had for him. The second thing that we learn from this story is an encouragement to all of us to be liberated to live whatever calling God has for you, no matter what the consequences are. To be willing to speak the truth. Yes, speak the truth in love, but speak the truth, no matter what consequences may come on your career, on your relationships on other things that may come into your life as the consequence because ultimately, to be in the kingdom of God is to be submitted to the king, to live out his purpose, to live out his calling, to stand on his truth. And so I encourage you not only to avoid the slavery of Herod Antipas, but ultimately to embrace the liberty to live out whatever calling God has for you, no matter the consequences for it. You see, there's one final thing that we need to look at here, and it's a very tragic story. I, I, I consider the story of Herod Antipas to be one of the most tragic in our entire New Testament. Why? Because listen to those words that Mark used to bring into this story. Look at verse 14. And King Herod heard of him, and he said that John the Baptist was risen from the dead, and therefore mighty works do show forth themselves in him. What does that sound like? What would lead Herod Antipas to say, I hear of just this man Jesus doing these mighty miracles. It must be John the Baptist. Who thinks like that? Do you know who thinks like that? A guilty conscience. The story of Herod Antipas was a man who was forced into doing something by his own decision, something he did not want to do and felt guilty about it for the rest of his life. A man who lived with regret and a conscience that was continually prodding at him and saying, you shouldn't have killed John the Baptist, you shouldn't have killed the John, the John the Baptist, such that when Jesus comes on the scene, his conscience is saying, that's John the Baptist. Do you know the problem with that, friends? Is that he never dealt with it. How do we know that he never dealt with it? It's because if you were to look at the book of Luke, you would realize that Jesus appeared before Herod, just before Jesus was sentenced to death. And do you know what the Bible tells us about this Herod Antipas? He said he was excited to see him. He was very glad to see Jesus, even as a prisoner, because he had wanted to talk to him for a long time, and he'd wanted to see a miracle done by him. And in some of the most sobering words in our entire New Testament, do you know what the Bible tells us? Jesus answered him nothing. Nothing. Here was a man who had heard of Jesus and his guilty conscience said it's John the Baptist and then Jesus shows up right before Jesus went to the cross to die for Herod's sins and Jesus had nothing to say to him. Not one word. Herod hadn't listened to John. He hadn't dealt with his guilty conscience. He hadn't submitted in repentance to God and now when the Savior of the world showed up before Herod, the Savior had nothing to say to him. Do you know what happened to Herod Antipas? Remember King Aretas of the neighboring dominion whose daughter he divorced and sent back home? Guess what history tells us King Aretas did. He brought together an army and came into Herod Antipas's region and gave him a serious military defeat. Not only that... At Herodias' urging, Herod Antipas continued pushing for power before the Roman Empire. And the the Roman Emperor ultimately deposed him, gave his territory to someone else, and sent him to exile where he died. The story of Herod Antipas is a tragic one. And ultimately, the most tragic thing was not only that he was compelled by his own lust, by his own desires to do things he knew was wrong. It's ultimately this, that his guilty conscience and his failure to repent and deal with his sin held him back from embracing the salvation that came only in Jesus Christ. And ultimately, where I want to close this message for all of us today is to say all of us are dealing with our own sin All of us are sinners. All of us deserve hell. All of us have fallen short of God's will for our life by our own self-centeredness. And with that guilty conscience will come one of two things. It will either try to silence it and push it away, or it will ultimately turn to Jesus, who is the only Savior, who is the only one who can forgive us of our sins and salve our guilty conscience with his forgiveness. And ultimately, my challenge to you this morning, is friends, is to recognize that like here at Antipas, your calling, your need, is to humble yourself before Jesus Christ, to accept his death as your substitute, to embrace him as your savior for the forgiveness of your sins, and to enter his kingdom by faith. Friends, this story has nothing to do with karma. It has everything to do with one courageous man who is willing to live out God's calling for his life no matter the consequences and another man who was utterly enslaved to his own self-centered desires in a way that had tragic consequences of God against him. May we learn our own lesson. Let's pray. Father, we thank you. For the truth of your word and we see it so wonderfully demonstrated in this story. And I pray this morning, Father, that you would apply these truths to our own lives. Lord, I pray for even one here today who is dealing with a conscience that is guilty. They know what it is to be tormented by regret over what they have done. I pray, Father, that they would hear and see the truth of who Jesus is, there is therefore now no condemnation, no guilt hanging over those who are in Christ Jesus. Jesus came to deliver us from our guilt. He came, us, came to free us from our shame. He came to forgive us of our sins. I pray that someone even here this morning would do business with you, would embrace Jesus by faith as Savior and Lord.